Most people, at one time or another, set some goals. Think about maybe some goals that you've set and the context in which they've been set. Maybe they were professional goals. I want to have a certain job, making a certain income, doing a certain thing that I care about, that I love, by a certain age, or I want to own my own business, or um, maybe they're educational goals. I want to go to this school and get that degree so that I can do this thing, or maybe because my parents did that thing. Athletes set goals, don't they? Because they want to perform at a certain level. Maybe it's an elite level, and there are very specific things that have to be done to get to that level, and so they set goals that they can measure so that they can reach, reach that competition, that level of competition. Churches set goals. We set goals for uh, staff and committees and mission and people we want to reach and things we want to do and ministries we want to engage and missions that need to be completed. And in each of these cases, goals usually work out to involve tracking performance so that we can get to the place we want to be, some sort of next level. The thing is, since most of life involves setting goals that are oriented around performance to get results, we sometimes come at the Christian life with that framework. Isn't Christianity and faith about goals and performing and meeting the goals so that God will be pleased with us? That's kind of how we come at it. The problem is, if we approach the Christian faith with a view to our performance, we will either be miserable knowing that we never live up to God's standard, or we'll be deceived thinking that we are living up to God's standard and everyone around us will be miserable. (laughs) Because, after all, we're God's gift to the world. (laughs) You may have met somebody like that, don't look around, especially if it's the person you're married to. Paul understands that the Christian life is not primarily about performance. There is a goal, and we're going to talk about the goal, but the Christian life is not primarily about performing to get to that goal. There's something else needed. There's something else necessary to reach the goal of the Christian life. And it's somewhat counterintuitive because it's unlike everything else in the world. Reaching the goal for Paul, for us, takes full surrender not flawless performance. That's the bottom line there. Reaching the goal in Philippians 3 takes full surrender, not flawless performance. Now, if we're going to reach the goal, we've got to know what the goal is, don't we? We've got to talk about the goal and be very clear on what we're after and what we're going for. Paul, in verse 12, is very clear that he has not reached his goal. Not that I've already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, the thing about this passage is he's vague. (laughs) He talks about a goal, but he doesn't say what it is, does he? Not that I have already reached the goal. Not that I've already obtained this. And you think, well, Paul, won't you tell us what this is? Help us out a little bit. And Paul says, remember the first rule of reading the Bible? 
context is everything. Pay attention to the context and you'll understand what I'm after. And so if we back up a verse or two, we figure out what this refers to. Now that I've already obtained this, well, what do you mean by this, Paul? Well, I mean what I said in the last verse, chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, where he says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the sharing of His sufferings by becoming like Him in His death, if somehow I may attain, what does it say? The resurrection of the dead. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained this. So what does this refer to? Resurrection. So he is clear if we read the whole passage, isn't he? You know, that's the first rule in the Bible is read the rest of the verse and read the previous verse. <laughs> it's absolutely, so you can't just read the one verse, you've got to read all the verses around it. So when Paul says, I, I've not reached the goal, I've not obtained the thing I'm chasing after, <clears throat> he is absolutely crystal clear, after all, that the thing he's after is the bodily, resurre bodily resurrection from the dead. So just to be clear, what Paul envisions is when Jesus comes back, right? all the people who belong to Jesus who have died, their graves are going to open up and their bodies are going to come out. But they're not going to be all kind of corpse-looking bodies decaying with worms and things. You know, if you have that image in your mind, get rid of it because that's not what it's about. I know it's gross, but now you know what I'm talking about, right? That's not, it's not these kind of decaying corpses. There are some people he wrote letters to and we think that's what they thought when he used this kind of language, but that's not what he means. He means glorified bodies. And he says that later in the chapter. If you go down to verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's from there that we're expecting a Savior. Notice he doesn't say we're expecting the Savior to take us from here to there. We're expecting the Savior to come from there to here. That's, that's the, the trajectory. And when he gets here, what's he going to do? Read the rest of the verse. Key rule there. He will transform the body of our humiliation. Some translations may say our humble bodies, right? And these bodies are nothing if not humble, right? Um, they break. They bruise. They get sick. They go blind. They go deaf. They fail. They make mistakes. Humble may be a bit of an understatement, <laughs> But Paul is saying Jesus is going to take these humble bodies with all of their flaws and all of their brokenness and all of their decay and he's going to transform them into what sort of thing? Into another sort of body. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. Now what is the body of glory for Jesus? Well, if you want to answer that question, all you got to do is think about Easter and the empty tomb. His body of glory, His glorious body, is the one that came out of the tomb on Easter morning. It's the one that Mary saw in the garden and mistook for the gardener. It's the one that the disciples saw in that locked room. It's the one that, in Luke's gospel, asked for some broiled fish for breakfast. And it's the one, the hands of which were offered to Thomas. If you don't believe, then come put your finger in these holes. Touch my body. 
perceive the wounds and the scars. And it's the body before which Thomas fell and exclaimed, my Lord and my God. The Gospels are absolutely clear in every way that Jesus came out of the tomb with a fully human body bearing the marks of the cross but glorified so that locked doors apparently aren't a problem. So there's continuity. The body that went in the tomb on Friday is the one that came out on Sunday. The tomb is empty. The grave clothes were at the end of the slab there, not wrapped around the body anymore because it was alive. And the Lord Jesus came out glorified. The death he died was the last time. He won't die again. And so when Paul talks about glorified bodies, transformed bodies, humble, broken bodies, conformed to his glorious body, then he's saying whatever happened to Jesus when he went in the tomb on Friday and came out on Sunday is what we should expect for ourselves when he comes back. Expect nothing more and nothing less. Whatever happened to Jesus when he went into the tomb on Friday and came out with his glorified body on Sunday, expect when you die to come out with one like that when it's all said and done, when he comes back. That's what he means when he says, I've not obtained this, I've not reached the goal, because that hasn't happened to any of us yet, has it? It's only happened to one person, and his name is Jesus. But when he comes back, as Charles Wesley said, all in him is mine, including his resurrection. Including his resurrection. So that's what he's going to do. He's going to transform the body of our humiliation that may be conformed to the body of his glory. And he's going to do it by the power that enables him to make all things subject to himself. And that's a spectacular way of saying, look, if you think that sounds impossible, you're talking about the one who speaks and worlds that didn't exist all of a sudden exist. I think he can handle a decaying body or a cremated body or any sort, because he has all power, and everything is subject to him, and he is sovereign, and when he speaks, matter and atoms and cells obey. They do his bidding, because he is their creator, their king, their lord, and their sovereign. So when he comes back, get ready to come to life like you've never had it before. Paul says, that's the goal. I'm not there yet, but that's where we're going. That's what we're after. Striving for union with the resurrected Christ. That's the goal. I want to know Christ. I'm willing to know Him in His sufferings because knowing Him in His resurrection is the most important, spectacular, incomparable, glorious reality imaginable. It's the only thing that matters. Union with the resurrected Christ. Not yet there yet, but all of my energy, Paul says, is set on that singular reality. That's the only thing that matters. For Paul, life is lived fully focused on 
the finish, and the finish is union with the resurrected Christ and participation in His bodily resurrection. Now, he draws on race images and metaphors from the Greek, the Greek and Roman world. And so if you read on into verse 13 and 14, you begin to get a sense for what he's after here. Beloved, I do not consider that I've made it my own. Jesus made me his own. And so that's all. I'm, I'm after him. I didn't do it. I didn't come up with it. I didn't lay hold of Jesus. Jesus laid hold of me. It's another way of saying God initiates, we respond. Grace comes first. Faith comes second. Jesus initiates our new life. I didn't lay hold of it. it laid, he laid hold of me. I didn't start my salvation, but here's what I do, he says. One thing, and one thing only. Not lots of things, one thing. I forget what's behind, I strain to what lies ahead. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the, some translations say heavenly call, some translations say upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now the word that comes early there in verse 14 um, is, in this translation, translated as goal, the goal. It's the word in Greek for the little stick that you would put at the finish line of a race. We have ribbons, right? When you watch the Olympics, there's a ribbon stretched across the finish line. The Greeks had a stick. You would think they could be a little more creative than that, but they weren't. <laughs> it's a stick. It's at the end. And if you wanted to win, what, you had to get to the stick first. And so you put all your energy on it. Not thinking about the past, not thinking about the starting line, thinking about the finish line. Not looking around to see who's beside me and whether or not they're getting close. Focused on the finish. Fully focused on the finish line. To reach the goal. That's the key thing for Paul. And the prize, he says, is this upward call or this heavenly call. And sometimes we want to over-spiritualize that, but there's no need to. We think about, I'm going to finish the race so I can go to heaven. But we've already said the real goal is the resurrection. So what's this all about? Well, in the ancient world... Uh, they had a similar practice to what we do when somebody wins a race. If you win a race, what do you get to do? They've got that box, and it's got levels. And if you win, which level do you get to go to? The upward most level. <laughs> you get to go to the top. Same way in the ancient world. If you win the race, you get the judge's upward call. <laughs> Come on up to the top podium. Come up to the platform. Let everybody see you. And they give you this wreath. And you put it on your head, and it's this crown, and, and everybody knows you're the fastest. You're the best. You're the best athlete. You've won. You've performed the best in that way. The thing about the Christian race for Paul is that it's not primarily about performance. It's about surrender to Jesus. Because right? what Paul doesn't say is, you've got to work really hard, and you've got to exercise, and you've got to... Try hard. You got to get in there and you got to do all the things that runners do, but the spiritual version of it to get to the finish line. That's not what he says. He just says, single focus on Jesus. Surrender to Jesus. Don't be divided. Let Jesus have full control. Fully focused on Jesus means my heart is completely surrendered to Jesus. It means I'm not 
my eyes aren't divided or distracted or looking. You know, I'm eyes on Jesus, just like the runner with the stick at the end of the race. Eyes on the finish line, eyes on Jesus. Not getting distracted. Fully focused on union with the resurrected Lord. And that surrender for Paul means that I'm not looking at my past. Right? Earlier in chapter 3, he told us a lot about his past. Hebrew born of Hebrews. Israelite. Tribe of Benjamin. Persecutor of the church. Blameless according to the law. He had this resume and that gave him his identity. And he says, now that I've got my eyes on Jesus, I'm not looking back at my past and letting that define me. For us, that can work out in a couple of ways, can't it? Maybe we're really proud of our past and it defines us in that way, kind of like Paul's had. Who needs Jesus when you've got a spectacular resume? <laughs> Everyone will know how amazing we are. Paul says if your eyes are fully focused on Jesus, you're not going to be looking backwards at those kinds of things, touting achievements. and That's why this isn't about performance, it's about the Lord. Because when we're performance-oriented, it's, all right, I'm going to get this degree, and I'm going to get this credential, and I'm going to get this job, and I'm going to be sure that I've got this experience. I'm going to go over here and look at my performance, look what I've done. I'm qualified. But the kingdom doesn't work that way, does it? There are no, <laughs> qualifications don't get us anywhere in the kingdom of God. Jesus loves to take unqualified people and do spectacular things with them. He loves to take the people you would expect the least and do the most. And if you look at the history of Israel all through the Scriptures, He loves to take slaves and save the world with their family. He likes to take people who didn't even exist as a nation and fulfill His promises to bless every nation. He likes to take fishermen and make them apostles. <laughs> he likes to take persecutors of the church and make them church planters. Because he's not primarily concerned with our performance or credentials or abilities or gifts or talents. He just wants us to be surrendered. Everything else in the world says, perform like this, do this, perform this way. And we take that mentality to Jesus and we take our eyes off the finish line and look at our performance and the thing that suffers is knowing Jesus. The thing we lose is knowing Jesus. Paul says, don't look at the past. Look at Jesus. And that, it works out in other ways too. Sometimes our past is something we're proud of. Sometimes it's not. Some of us are very ashamed of the things in our past. Different kinds of brokenness. Maybe it's some sort of abuse. Maybe it's some sort of behavior that we engaged in that we don't want other people to know about. We feel condemned, we feel shame, we feel judgment, we walk in the room, people who know look at us a certain way. And we're never good enough for Jesus because of our past. Because of the things we've done. Never any good for the kingdom. How many people have I met? And if I walked in the church, the building would fall on. People actually say that, did you know? I mean, it's not just a cliche. People say that. 
And it is a cliche, but there's a deeper thing going on there. Sometimes people are just looking for an excuse not to show up and worship God, but sometimes they feel thoroughly unworthy. I'm not worthy to come worship God. You know what the answer to that is? You're absolutely right. You're not. That's what makes it grace. All your shame, all the judgment, all the condemnation, all the, if they knew what I did, they wouldn't let me in the room. Jesus says, my body was broken and my blood was shed for you. Come to me. And I want to give you union with my resurrection life. Not look into the past. That's why the race imagery is so helpful. Because if you're an elite runner, the last thing on your mind is the starting line once you've started. You're not looking at the blocks. You're not looking at the past. None of that matters anymore. Doesn't matter how quick you got off. Doesn't matter whether you were a second late after the gunshot starts. The only thing that matters is everything right now in this moment focused on the finish line. And for us, it doesn't matter whether whatever brokenness is in the past, whatever shame is in the past. The only thing that matters is a full focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Reaching the goal is not about flawless performance. It's completely about focus on Jesus and full surrender to Jesus. That's the goal. That's how you get to the goal. Eyes on Jesus. So the race imagery helps us. We're not looking back at the starting line. And we're not comparing ourselves to the people who are walking the Christian walk beside us. We do that, don't we? Well, I may not have it all together, but I got it better together. I got it together better than that guy does. <laughs> did you hear about what she did? And every time we start to gossip, or every time we start to do that comparison, or I'll never be the kind of Christian that person is. I'll never have faith like that person. I'll... Is our focus on Jesus when we talk like that? Not at all. Is our focus on ourselves when we talk like that? Completely. And the runner says, look, if you're going to win the race, don't look and see who's close by. Don't look and see. They, you, they may be right behind you. They may be 100 yards behind you. Don't give in to the temptation to look around because the moment you take your eyes off the finish and glance, you're, you're going to have energy that's not focused on the finish. You're going to slow down and you may even veer off and run into somebody and then you'll both be on the ground and neither of you get the finish line. Race imagery is so helpful because it just reinforces the importance of not looking to our past, whether it's something we're proud of or something we're ashamed of, of not comparing ourselves to other people on the, on the race, in the race. Not about our performance. It's about being surrendered in every way to the one who stands at the finish line, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be very clear that surrender does not mean I'm disengaged. We may be tempted to think of it that way. Well, if I surrender, it just means I'm not trying anymore. I'm just going to stop doing stuff. Well, in one sense, yes, yeah, stop doing the comparing myself to other people and living in the past. Don't do that. But surrendering to Jesus means I have to be engaged in other ways. I have to be engaged focused on the Lord, for one thing, 
And that means I have to be attentive to things that will come and try to take my focus off of him. Right? So what do I let my eyes fall on? Where do I go for entertainment? I was reminded by a friend this week, this, this week on my travels of how the Psalms, Psalm 101 particularly, reminds us the importance of not allowing our eyes to fall on vile and vulgar things. If I want my life to be filled with love for Jesus, it means I don't allow my vision to perceive things contrary to the love of God. Vile and vulgar things. It means I have to be attentive to deceit when it tries to sneak its way in. Anything that takes my focus off Jesus I have to be vigilant, not because my performance makes me good enough for God, but because if I'm going to be single-mindedly, single-eye, singly focused on the Lord, I've got to be attentive to things that would distract me from Him. And be vigilant to to keep them at bed, to to not turn to those things. So I've got to ask my question, what do I look at? What am I entertained by? How do I spend my time? How do I use my resources? Do I use my time with trifle matters? Or is all of my time fully focused on the Lord Jesus Christ? And that doesn't mean my family suffers, because if I'm loving Jesus, it means I'll be loving my family and with the love that overflows from the Lord. Right? It's not, you remember those lists? Sometimes people will say you've got to love God the most and love your family second and then maybe the church after that and you fill in the blanks after. That's crazy. It's not an option. Am I going to love Jesus more and love my family less? Am I going to love Jesus more and be a little bit less in love with the church? If I'm loving Jesus, if my heart is overflowing with his perfect love, then I'm gonna, my family's going to feel the, the bounty of that, aren't they? <laughs> If my heart is overflowing with the perfect love of Jesus, if I'm singly focused on the Lord, then the church is going to be washed in that. And that's good. (laughs) It's not about ranking my loves. It's about loving Jesus with everything he puts within me and everyone around me then experiences the glory of that. Eyes on Jesus, fully focused on the Lord, not performing, not keeping up with, oh man, I did I didn't get it right today, Jesus. I'm just, you know, surely you don't want anything to do with me anymore. We take that attitude with him sometimes. Yes, we need to confess when we don't get it right, but not because he's bringing down the hammer, but because he wants to deal with that thing so we can love him better and more fully and overflowing. He wants to work in us, renew those things. I've got to keep my attention away from things that distract me from Jesus and keep them on things that cultivate my love for Jesus, worship being the most central, primary thing. Yes, on the Lord's Day, but consistently throughout the week. Am I carving out time for the Lord Jesus, substantial time to hear from Him, to experience His love for me, to worship Him, privately, with my family, maybe with some close friends. 
so that I can experience his perfect love on a consistent daily basis. So that the people around me will experience his perfect love in me on a consistent daily basis. Am I cultivating that kind of life consistently? All over the place. When we are, when our focus is on Jesus, we're not obsessing over flawless performance, but it turns out things tend to work out better. You might make a mistake, but it's not some sort of high-handed, sinful rebellion. I'm not talking about flawless, sinless perfection. We're just talking about what would it be like if we were singly focused on Jesus such that everything we do is evaluated in light of whether or not it cultivates our focus on the Lord or detracts from it. What is it like to cultivate that kind of life? Our performance is actually going to improve if we're doing that. But the second we get focused on performance, we've lost track of where we need to be. Again, the race imagery is so helpful here because Paul says something surprising in verse 15. We need to keep that race imagery in mind when we read it. I mentioned as we were reading through the text, when we got to verse 15, pay attention to your translation. Anybody got a King James Version out of curiosity? No one. There you go. Um, let those of us then who are mature, anybody got something else? Complete, maybe? If you had a KJV, I think it says perfect. 315. Let those of us who are mature, those of us who are complete. The striking thing about this is, in verse 12, when Paul says, I've not reached the goal, the Greek word there is actually the word for perfect. I've not reached perfection. Actually, it's the next bit. Sorry, let me get that right. I've not already obtained this or have already reached the goal. Right there, you may have a footnote like mine does. The goal, the footnote says, or have already been made perfect. And we're cool with that, right? Because we're not perfect yet. Obviously, it's self-evident. He didn't even have to say it. None of us have been perfected. Waiting on the resurrection for that, aren't we? <laughs> the thing is, in verse 15... And there ought to be a footnote on this one. Let those of us then who are mature, the word translated mature is the same root word as the one translated perfect in verse 12. You following me here? Let me be absolutely clear. In verse 12, Paul says, I'm not perfect. In verse 15, he takes that same root and says he is. And we think, Paul, did you fall and hit your head between verses 12 and 15? <laughs> What's going on here? If you're really interested in this sort of thing, the Greek word in uh, 12 is a verb, teleao, and the one in 15 is an adjective, teleos. So you can see it's the same thing there. One's just the action word and one's the describing word. I've not yet been teleao, let those of us who are teleos. And you think, Paul, what do I do with that? Are you contradicting yourself? Have you lost your mind? Are you mixed up? And he's not. He's just talking about two different things, and that's why the translators struggle. 
how are we going to do this? Are we just going to leave the same word in there that's describing two different things? Are we going to just throw in a footnote or two and let people figure it out on their own? That's why we have different translations. Anytime we're reading, translations come out differently. It's good to dig in there a little bit. So let's dig in, see what's going on with this passage. Why does Paul say he's not perfect in one verse and then describe himself and others as perfect three verses later? What's that all about? Again, the race imagery is helpful. I have this distinct memory of a Summer Olympics. I don't remember the year, but I remember the runner, Michael Johnson. Anybody remember that guy? He was all the stuff like 20 years ago or something. And if you've watched the Olympics, you know that typically NBC, when they do their promos, will have um, that little, they're coming back from commercial or they're going to commercial, and oftentimes there's an image in, in the promo of a sprinter. And the camera's behind the finish line, and maybe the ribbon's at the bottom, and you can kind of see it there, and that's what he's racing for. And you can see about this much up, right? The the top of the torso and the head of the runner, the shoulders. And he's running, and you can see the sweat exploding off of his face. And the veins are popping out of his head. You got the image in your head yet? Shoulders, all these muscles, just the striations are coming and there's veins and and the guy is going and everything he's got. He's not thinking about the starting blocks, is he? He's not thinking about who's beside him and whether they're gaining on him, is he? He's not thinking about the past. He's not comparing himself to the people who are running in the race with him. Where is his focus? He is fully focused on the finish line. All of his physical energy is fully focused on the finish line. All of his mental energy, his psychology, his emotions, everything he's got, every bit of sweat exploding off of his body, every ounce of muscle is fully engaged in one objective, getting to the finish line. Could he do it any better? Not at that moment. Is he going to get up and go to the gym in the morning? Yeah. So here's this guy who couldn't be giving anything more in the moment. You might say he's running with everything he's got. You might say he's running perfectly. Would that be a fair way to describe it? There's no flaw in his run. He's doing it at an elite level. The entire world is watching. Nobody's better. He's got everything he's got. He could not be more engaged in striving after the finish line. He's running perfectly. In verse 15, when Paul says, let those of us who are mature, let those of us who are complete, let those of us who are perfect, that's what he means. It doesn't mean there's not more work to do. It doesn't mean it's impossible to trip and fall. (laughs) It doesn't mean he's not experiencing the temptation to look back and see where the next guy is. It just means he's resisting that temptation, keeping his focus on the finish line. So Paul uses the word perfect in two ways. One time, in verse 12, he uses it to describe the future resurrection of the body, and that is, that's an unparalleled perfection. Nobody's got that. But he also uses it to describe the life that is fully focused on Jesus in verse 15. And that's why... When we read mature, maybe that doesn't get the full force of what he's after. It's not wrong, but maybe there's more to it 
than what the English word mature means. Complete, that's closer. <laughs> Paul says that those of us who are perfect. And again, be very, very clear here. He doesn't mean you'll never make a mistake. He does not mean you'll never be tempted. He does not mean you got a perfect record. I mean, we know Paul's record, killed Christians. <laughs> he doesn't mean you know everything. Not the omnipresent kind of perfection like God, omni, omniscient, know everything, be everywhere. Not, that's not what he's talking about. But he's willing to use this word, this forceful word, this strong word, to describe his life and the life of some other believers apparently, and he expects the Philippians to get on board. Because he says, let those of us who are perfect, complete, be of the same mind. Let's think about this the same way. Let's not get distracted. Let's be fully focused on Jesus, knowing that something could come along and tempt us to look away. But the question is, right now in this moment, does Jesus have all of me? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. Right now, at this moment, does Jesus have all of me? That's all he means. And then he shows us what people look like who don't have their being fully oriented on Jesus. Verse 17, brothers and sisters, imitate me, observe those who live according to the example you have in us, for many live as enemies of the cross. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you, even with tears, their end is destruction, their God is the belly, their glory is their shame, their mind is set on earthly things. We could say a lot about these guys, he doesn't tell us who they are, but we can observe that they are focused on themselves, and they are not focused on Jesus. Their God is their belly. They worship their appetites. They worship their desires. They are self-oriented, not Jesus-focused. And that's the options for Paul. You're either going to love Jesus or you're going to be loving yourself, and you can't do both at the same time. If you've ever read Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, I mean, this guy gets it. He says, I'm going to quote him. I'm going to read it because I don't want to mess up the quote. Chan says, in the same way, you have to stop loving and pursuing Christ in order to sin. And that's why Paul is okay talking about complete and perfection and things like that. In the same way, you have to stop loving and pursuing Christ in order to sin, Chan says. When you are pursuing love, running towards Christ, you don't have the opportunity to wonder, am I doing this right or did I serve enough this week? I'm not focused on my performance. He goes on, when you're running towards Christ, you are free to serve Love and give thanks without guilt, worry, or fear. As long as you are running, you are safe. As long as you are running towards Jesus, you are safe. Brothers and sisters, you've ever thought about it, the reality that we have to stop loving Jesus to sin? Every time we sin, every time we let our eyes stray to a place they shouldn't stray, every time we let our mouth say things we know they should not say, in that moment, it's not primarily about performance, it's about love. And it's about loving myself and my desires more than loving Jesus. In that moment. 
does Jesus have my whole heart, my whole body, my emotions, my mind, my will, my passions, my desires. And brothers and sisters, this is the thing. You may be thinking, this guy's off his rocker. <laughs> we thought we liked this preacher until he started getting up here talking about perfection. What in the world? This is what it means to be a Methodist. Some of you guys are planning to start reading John Wesley's sermons with me. Guess what? There's one called On Perfection, and it's all about this. You know why Wesley was willing to use that language? Because he loves his Bible. And that's what Paul said. So he's like, if Paul said it, all right, let's talk about it. Let's figure out what's going on there. And he understands that we're not talking about this flawless perfection thing. We're not talking about knowing everything. We're not talking about never making a mistake. We're not talking about people who are born with infirmities is the word he uses. You know, we have, there are, brothers and sisters, there are things in our lives that aren't our fault. Brokenness that's the fault other people sin against us. And there's emotional damage and psychological damage. And maybe there's physical damage. That's not our fault when someone abuses us or treats us in a way that creates those kinds of things that doesn't detract from what we're talking about here because we're only talking about a heart that is overflowing with the love that Jesus dumps into it and pours into it and overflows all over the place. I mean, the good news of the Gospel and the reason John Wesley said God brought the Methodist people in existence is to tell the world that grace is bigger than all your junk. Grace is bigger than all your brokenness. Grace is bigger than all of the shame and all of the pride and all of the ego and all of it. Grace is bigger. And if grace is bigger, it means God can take that brokenness and fill it up with His love. But I've got to realize that in every moment, every moment, I'm not talking about 10 days from now, I'm not talking about 10 minutes from now. My question is, right now, in this moment, does Jesus have my heart? All of it. Nothing held back. Am I fully focused on the finish? And if I am, I don't have to perform for Him. <laughs> I can just let Him love me. And the people around me will experience the glory of that love. So we're going to have communion. And when you come up here, there's going to be one station on each side. When you come up and you break the bread and you dip it in the cup and you take it into your mouth, you remember that that is the, resurrect, the broken but resurrected body and blood of Jesus that is a tasteable, tangible manifestation of His unparalleled love for you. His perfect love for you. And you let that fill you up. And then if you need somebody to pray with, I'm going to go stand off at the side. We've got other people who are going to serve communion today. And if you're in a place and you're saying, I want Jesus to have my whole heart, but I'm not there yet. I want Jesus to, to be the full object of my affections and my focus. I want to be in that place, but there are things in the way. There are things that are distracting me. My eyes are looking in places they're not supposed to look, and my heart is going in places it's not supposed to go, and you just want somebody to pray with you? We can, we can do that. So take that communion, and then come find your pastor. And we'll find Jesus and get fully focused on it. Because we want to reach the goal and we want to reach it together. But the 
goal, brothers and sisters, is about full surrender. That's the place we want to be today. We want to be fully surrendered to the one whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, who was raised in glory, and who loves us more than we can possibly imagine. You can surrender to that guy. You can trust him because he has what's best for us.